The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Intuitive Connection, where spirituality and psychology meet to help you be your best and brightest self. I'm your host, Victoria Shaw, and in each episode, I'll help you to awaken your own inner wisdom, step into your power, and live a more divinely inspired life. You're here to let your inner light shine. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hello and welcome, everyone, to Intuitive Connection. Today, we have a guest and one that I am so excited about. Dr. Chris Niebauer, and I should have asked you before we went online if I got your name right. Was I close? That's right. Perfect. Oh, yay. Okay. Very good. And Chris is a professor of cognitive neuropsychology at Slippery Rock University and also the author of a book that I read this summer that just made my heart sing, No Self, No Problem. Did I get that right? Because I didn't write that down. (laughs) And Chris, this is a great book and I can't wait to share the content with people But I want to share a little bit about my personal journey and why this spoke to me so directly because when I was young, my dream and my goal in life was to study neuropsychology. And I was fascinated by the mind-brain connection. I was fascinated by these big questions like what is consciousness and how can we understand that by understanding the brain? And I did have a belief at the time because I was like 14 that everything was about the brain. I was a scientist. I believed in materialism. So I really believed that we would understand the mind solely from studying the brain and that somewhere in the brain was where the mind lied. And I don't believe that so much anymore. And we can talk about that in a little while because your your book definitely is not about that. But that was sort of my dream and that was sort of my goal. And you know, I, I took a different path. But when I read your book, it's sort of like it made me so happy because it picked up where I left off. And also it made me so happy that you did it because maybe I put that one down and you did it so much better than I ever could have. So Chris, welcome. And I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your journey because you had a very interesting story going from a science person like me, and you're still a science person, you're a professor of neuropsychology, but you had kind of an awakening moment, right? That led you to the work that you do today. Yeah. I started off uh, not asking or contemplating or thinking about what I want to do in life. I had a very intense level of neurosis that was thrown on me. And I started off the book with that, just the death of my father. Just, And I think for a lot of people, when they first deal with death, it sort of shatters 
their paradigm. It sort of uh, shakes things up. And for me, it really did. It's it sort of like uh, just took everything. The whole foundation felt like it was gone. And I started to see death as the enemy and, and, I, and I wanted to fight it. And I thought, well, you know, how do you fight the in- inevitable? And I felt that the harder I fought this, the deeper I was getting into it. And I found myself in my 20s, deeply neurotic, painfully so to the point that to even have a conversation with someone was impossible because most of my awareness was tied in with death at every single moment. And just thinking that, you know, well, am I going to die this one second, you know? And I kind of laugh a little bit now because, and that's not to trivialize suffering at all. It's just a sort of, uh, when you look back at your journey, some of the, the intense suffering you have, when you make a transformation, it, it's interesting to remember those moments. Because what I had discovered is that it was me fighting the neurosis. It was me not wanting to be anxious. That absolutely was my anxiety. And when I had that epiphany, I just gave up. I absolutely surrendered. And I said, do your worst. Kill me now. If death is the enemy, then I surrender. And I found that immediately everything had changed. I had stopped worrying. (laughs) Anxiety had gone down. And that really was a puzzling thing because I had been in the same path that you took. This idea that the brain certainly must yield the mysteries of the mind. And psychology has to have some answers. So I ended up getting a psych degree, an undergraduate degree in psychology. And I ended up going and studying neuroscience in grad school. And it did give some really interesting pointers. And I'll tell you, I've really reconceptualized psychology over the last 30 years. And I don't think of it the way I used to. Uh, In fact, I find it to be much more helpful now than I did back then. And I think I was looking at it in a much different way. But what I found is that it's a, it's a really useful part of the puzzle. But what I needed personally was the influence of Eastern philosophy. I needed to open things up to something much more than the thinking mind. I needed that influence of an awareness that was more than just that voice in my head. And when I started studying Eastern philosophy, that's when Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, when I started studying, I had realized that they were talking about our existence in a way that was more than just what we think. And I had realized that this neurosis I was experiencing was really an intense level of thinking. It was a thinking problem. And in your book, you talk about how neuroscience really goes along with this Buddhist idea that your mind will will get there. Your mind is an illusion, right? And that thinking and thought is actually the problem. Can you tell us more about that and how you got from, all right, so you you've had this awakening and you've you've discovered that, you know, letting go and getting out of thought is the way to peace of mind or peace from mind or peaceful mind. I don't know, (laughs) mindfulness, any of the above. And how did you translate that back to your work? How did you connect those dots? What I found really, and this is always a a continuing path for me, uh, but what I found is that psychology and neuroscience are going to be really useful for the average person dealing with the big life issue of who I am. And so that's what we're all on this path. I think everyone is. Who am I? You know? Know thyself. I think that is just the question. Yep. 
And psychology gives us a certain type of answer to that. And it's because of its background and its influence in Western thinking. And it comes, you know, super influenced by people like Rene Descartes, who, if you remember his famous, I think, therefore I am. And that's a bold statement because what that's saying is my very existence depends on my capacity for thinking and thought. Right. And so psychology has done an absolutely wonderful job. Neuroscience has done a wonderful job, not in telling us who we are but actually in helping us discover who we are not. And that was the discovery that I had, that all the thoughts that were going through my head, I was so caught up in the idea that that was who I am. And in that moment of surrender, what it was, was the realization that that's not even who I am. That's not my real self. When I ponder the question, know thyself, who am I? I was going in the wrong direction because I had continuously created the idea that I was my thinking. Right. And I think that's a very common experience for so many people. I think that's a common experience for most human beings on the planet right now. I think it may be the... So I have another book coming out. It's sort of a workbook for No Self, No Problem. And in it, I really get into this issue of if we are suffering from a thinking problem, how do we get out of it? And the trick is we do not get out of it with more thinking. That's what got us here in the first place. And so what's left? And so it's sort of a path that you, again, find out who you are not. I'm not this and that I'm not that. So kind of a deconstruction of all the things that you thought you were. And then once that's all gone, what you're left is terribly interesting. It's a fascinating mystery. I love that. I love so much in what you said, because my passion too was all of those exact same questions, which is what led me to psychology. I was a psychology philosophy major as an undergrad, went full on psychology for my doctorate. And I often say I got to the end of that journey. And for me, you know, I was at a top school working for a top guy and doing this research and asking and answering somewhat boring questions. And, you know, what I was taught was you ask the question that you can get an answer to and that you can get published. And I went to my advisor who was like an endowed chair at Princeton. Like, you don't get bigger than that. And I said, Phil, like, when do we get to ask the questions that we want to ask? And because he was a philosophically minded soul as well. And he said, I don't know. And so for me, that's why I left the field because I felt like the passion was gone. And I'm happy with what I'm doing now and I and I'm happy too to have all of the things that I learned along the way. But you didn't do that. You didn't walk away. You went into the the wet neuroscience work and you said, you know, I'm gonna pursue that here. And one of the things that I understood from your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea that if you go looking for the self in the brain, it's not even there. And that the neuroscience shows us that the sense of self that we have that for many of us is is leading the show falsely, I think, is not even real. So can you tell us a little more about that? As humans, again, we've been asking the question of who we are for so long. And then in the 90s, when neuroscience was just starting to become real popular, uh, I think the 90s was actually the decade of the brain. Congress declared it. You know, So that's a pretty big deal. Right. And so many of us were so convinced that it really held all, all the answers. And they've been so successful 
mapping out language, mapping out, I mean, every mental function you can think of, reading, writing, it's all, you know, if you've seen these brain maps, they're very detailed. Every little bump and groove, they've all got names and and, and they've got functions. And if you're a neuroscientist, you spend a lot of time memorizing those. And it's funny when you were telling your story, I, I had such a similar experience. I lost the passion with the neuroscience to a degree because I found that I was looking for the self like some, and we just weren't finding it. There wasn't even a hint of finding the self in the brain. Um, there was so much disagreement that people couldn't even decide whether the self was in the left side or the right side of the brain. It was really just an absolute mess. And then people began to ask the question, and I think a little deeper, like, what would it even mean if we did find the self in the brain? Because one of the things I think neuroscience, and again, this is this take I have on neuroscience showing us who we are not, not who we are, is that when you look in the brain, what do you expect to find? Well, you're going to find cells and you know connections between cells. You'll find neurotransmitters that communicate between cells. But there's no self in any of this. There, there's no who we are. There's no passion. And so this has evolved into what we call the hard problem of consciousness now. And the hard problem of consciousness is this idea, and it, it was put forth by materialists, people like Francis Crick, who wrote The Astonishing Hypothesis, which is, you know, the idea, the astonishing hypothesis is that this matter, these 87 billion neurons we have that make up our brain, that that is going to create consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create who we are, and that we will discover the mystery of who we are if we understand how the brain works. But that never happened, it never came close, and that's why people are calling it, you know, went from like the hard problem of consciousness now to the impossible problem of consciousness. (laughs) I mean, there's, you know, you look in the brain and you're going to find three pounds of 87 billion neurons and, but, but that's it. Now that's not to trivialize the brain. Again, like you said, I, I haven't dismissed neuroscience. I think neuroscience is, is going to give us a lot of very interesting pointers. And For example, like in the book, I talk about the different types of processing between the left and right sides of the brain. And I think that's a very helpful pointer to people to show that the left side of the brain processes information in a slightly different way and that the right side of the brain processes information in a much more joyful, pleasant way that a lot of us are working towards when we do meditation and mindfulness. And so we can use neuroscience like a map and it's going to give us so many interesting pointers But in the end, that's what it's doing. It's just giving us pointers. The ultimate mystery of who we are, the ultimate mystery of consciousness, the human experience, all of that, uh, I don't think, and again, it sounds funny coming from someone who does neuroscience, but it's not going to be revealed in the brain. But we're going to have a lot of fun along the way. And the neuroscience is going to give us so many hints you know, it's like, a, it's like a, I think of neuroscience as that trail of breadcrumbs we left ourselves. So when we got on this adventure, we could find our way home. And so the neuroscience, it's helping us find our way back. I love that. And I think everything is a breadcrumb to find your way home if you <laughs> use it with the right energy and the right intention. It is. I think too, what's so powerful about the work that you do. And I, by the way, left the field in 1996 and I, I sometimes laugh. I left at just the wrong moment because everything that I thought I wanted to do started right about then. And even my advisor who was just, he did more like artificial intelligence and computer modeling and that kind of thing. 
but even he was doing brain type research or some of his students were because it was just so popular. And um, so I, I missed the boat. I should have just gotten on a different one or maybe not. It all worked out exactly how it should. Yeah. But I also think for me, like at the time, spirituality just, it wasn't part of the mix. And so I think sometimes when we are broadening that lens and then coming back to the science with that broader perspective and asking the questions from there, it kind of changes everything. Yeah, that's a great observation that things have changed over the last 20 years in the 90s. To talk about spirituality, it was so much more taboo back then. It was it was like talking about, you know, same thing that happened with consciousness. It was this topic that it just didn't go over very well. And, and now all of a sudden you could be... A respectable researcher and do consciousness, and you can be a respectable researcher in psychology and study spirituality. And so we've opened that door, and when we've changed our value system, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book: how the left brain will devalue things that don't serve it, and a lot of things connected with the spiritual journey are things that the left side of the brain trivializes. And so we've done a great job over the last twenty years in terms of shifting our values to something that uh, orients us more towards being open to, um, like I could take my class over and we can do a drum circle or something. And they're far more open to this notion that something very cool and mysterious might happen. And I think if I tried to do a drum circle back in the 90s, I don't know how that would go over. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally want to take now your neuroscience class with drum circle because that sounds amazing. Although I can't necessarily say that my student in 1986 would have been signed up for that class. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe not. So Mm -hmm. I can totally see that. It's so... It's so cool. And I do think that we are really growing and changing. And so in terms of the two hemispheres, would you say maybe this just came to me, this idea that, you know, we've just been a left brain dominant world approach for so long is, is part of what's happening now a balance or a balancing where that left brain, no self self is going to step out of control a little bit? I think it's going to be a very interesting time because There is that shift. I absolutely believe that. And again, in the book, I talk about these stories like Jobel Taylor, who had a left brain stroke and instantly went over to right brain processing. And what we're doing is we're mirroring that kind of as a culture. You know, we're not just, it's not an instantaneous jump from left brain to right brain, but we're slowly revaluing processes that are associated with the right side of the brain. And so we can see this happening, but the reason I think it's going to be a very interesting trip, and I talk about this just a little bit in the book, but it's very close to my own experience. So I I thought I had to mention it because it's been part of my journey, is that when you, and people who meditate, particularly people who are starting to meditate might be able to relate to this. You start to meditate, or maybe you're doing Tai Chi or Qigong or some exercise, or maybe you're starting to do mindfulness, and you find these wonderful states of sometimes people describe them as joy, peace, and it feels like everything's okay. You know, to me, that's a sensation. Like, I guess you could say you trust the universe, you know, but the fascinating thing is that sometimes the mind will try to reestablish itself and it comes in. And then I I talk to the students and people who are just starting meditation and they describe the process as they'll make a little bit of progress, but then it almost seems like it goes back a little bit. 
And I think that's an important thing to talk to people about when they start this journey, because the mind, that left brain with language and the notion of control and trying to convince you that that's who you are, and it tries to convince you that this existence is terribly serious. Everything about life, there are deadlines and and the mistakes are tragedies. And it's always trying to convince you that everything about your life is so serious. And it's going to come back and it's going to try to reestablish that. And so I found this has just been part of my journey. Every time I go deeper into right brain processing, deeper in the piece, I get a little bit of the left brain coming back saying, no, you better take this seriously. You know, (laughs) this isn't fun. This is serious business. Yeah. I mean, I feel into what you're saying personally on two levels. One, I feel that whenever I'm sort of deepening my spiritual connection and and going to a new level in the way that I understand things and the way I vibe and the way that I am, my smaller self or ego will definitely, there's sometimes like a little bit of a reverb or a, a pushback. And, you know, so it'll show you exactly where you still need to work and still need to grow. And I also feel for me more and more, I'll have these moments where I'm just completely at peace and completely at at joy. And they just come up spontaneously. It could be Mm -hmm. a meditation, but a lot of times it's just that all is well feeling because that is really who and what we really are. At least that's what I think. And then the mind will sometimes come in and just, you know, be like, well, we got to rattle the tree. And I think this is the best way ever to feel, you know, but it's almost like I'm so not used to holding that energy that after a few seconds, it just feels strange. And the mind comes back in and says, wait, no, that's not okay. And I'm like, well, why the heck would it not be? Well, I think we've become so familiar with feeling stress. And even though, of course, stress has its obvious negative experience along with it, it's also a familiar experience for so many of us. And so you might have these moments of peace, but there's a weird paradox with it because the peace doesn't feel familiar to you and it feels new. And it, and so all of a sudden it feels almost like comforting to get back into your old state of worry. Right. And then you start worrying again and you say, oh, you know, I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm very serious again, but it feels like home because this is right. what I've been doing for 20 years. Exactly. That's why I always tell people to be kind to themselves. Yes. Yes. Be kind with the journey because the part that's doing the judgment isn't even you anyway. So <laughs> I love that. So let's talk really quick for people that haven't been studying neuropsychology and they're not neuropsychology geeks like I am. Talk a little bit about this right and left brain and the differences in their strengths and and how this relates to Buddhist teachings. So in neuroscience, people have been talking about the left and right side of the brain for over 50 years. I mean, really, it goes back, I mean, thousands of years. I mean, it's one of the most obvious anatomical facts of the brain. You know, a kid looks at the brain and there's a real obvious left half and right half. And so we've been talking about the left and right sides of the brain forever. And then the research got really intense in the 80s and 90s. And they call this laterality research, just to the side. So how does the left side differ from the right? And I think we we made some really fascinating discoveries about the different modes of human experience that reflect the left brain And the left brain does language. We know that when you're talking to yourself and you hear that voice in the head, we know it's a small area called Broca's area in the left brain that is active and it's creating that voice in the head. But we also know that the left side of the brain does categories. And I think categories are a very interesting thing that human beings are really just starting to appreciate. So in categories, you have to ignore all 
the uniqueness and you focus on one quality that these very different things have in common, and then you forget about everything and just treat them all as one group. And that and we have to do that for language. That makes language work. And that's why the left brain does language. And again, with language, of course, another thing that's really obvious is that it's sequential. And so we talk one word at a time. And so left brain processing is all about uh, sequencing. Everything has a before and after. And think about how much that relates to the way we conceptualize our lives. We have a past, a present, and a future. And so in the same way, a sentence you know, has one word at a time. It has a past, and it's coming from one place and going to another. And so all of that is very much reflecting the left brain, that one thought at a time, that words are real, and you better take me seriously. I think about grammar, you know? I mean, I, <laughs> I always have so much fun with grammar, and I find not everyone has my joy of exploring with grammar. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't share that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but then the right side of the brain, and I'm just talking about the classic research. So right. when it came really obvious in the 80s and 90s, left side does language and it does categories and it does categories. And I'll give you just an idea of this in a second, but it, it is so profound with categories. It can even outdo the right brain in its specialty as long as you tweak it a little bit and make it about categories. So the right brain research came out overwhelmingly that the right brain is about space. It navigates us through space. It has a global appreciation for the surroundings. So it's really looking at the big picture and it's looking to see how everything is interconnected. And this was kind of, again, one of those interesting pointers about neuroscience. When you look at how the right brain is organized, it's actually interconnected far more than the left. And so it's able to make really interesting connections and feel that when we say, well, we're all connected, it's the, the right brain is really good at that because that's what it does. It creates bridges and connections between everything. The left brain is much better at dissecting and taking things apart. And even the research they've done with birds. So again, this is like part of a long evolutionary process. Um, and the left brain of a bird is really good at looking at different parts. But the right brain is what puts them all together into a whole and sees how they're connected. But so they had this task about space. And so like if you reach out and grab an object, that's your right brain because you need to know precisely how far something is in order to navigate through space. And navigating through space is a, it's far more difficult. You know, we just think we do it and we don't really understand how complex the process is because to navigate through space, you have to know where everything is all at once to do it successfully. And so they came up with a task. And, and, and what the task was, is it was a spatial task, but it, it was a categorical spatial task. So you had to tell whether something was on the left or the right. And that's the wonderful thing about categories. You know, so something is to the left, whether it's just a little to the left or really far from the left, you forget about the differences and everything becomes one thing. It's the same thing. It's all to the left. And in this study, what they did is they found that the left brain can outperform the right, even in space, as long as it's about categories. Wow. And so that to me was a very, when we talk about our culture these days, and we say we're a left brain culture, one way we word that is we could say that, well, we're just a culture dominated by categories. And we've stepped into this categorical world. And the interesting thing about those categories is categories are about differences. You know, they're about opposites. And it's really one of the things that you find in Taoism. 
with something as simple as like the yin yang symbol. And that's such a wonderful symbol. And, you know, a lot of I see students and it's such a popular thing. People are getting tattoos and no one's really like, why did this symbol become so popular? And I think it's, they may not be able to articulate it in language, but there's a feeling like, no, you know, everything isn't separate. It looks separate on the surface, but beneath the surface, there's actually a connection there. And that's what the right brain is really good at. At seeing those connections. And, you know, I feel such an affinity. I read the Tao of Physics when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned that in your book. So that's another, it made me happy. And it's my only exposure to Taoism. But there was something about it that resonated so deeply. This idea that there's opposites, illusory opposites, right? And that, maybe I'm getting it wrong. So stop me. This is how I remember it. But it's almost like if you spin it really fast, then you realize it's all one again. And I don't know, it's not something I can put words to, but it's exactly what you said. When I see it, I feel it, I know it, and I know it's truth. Yeah, that's a perfect way. I love the way you put that because the way the right brain processes information, the right brain can understand language, but it's not the command center for language. And so we have these experiences, like you just said, and then we admit, like, I have a hard time putting it into words. And that's a great way to express that you have a right brain awareness, but you can't get the left brain to articulate it because the left brain's on its own trip. You know, it's so busy creating division and convinced in a very serious way that these are opposites and and, and opposites, they're different as different can get. And the right brain is feeling the connection. And when we get out into the world and we start experiencing like the left brain says that me and you were really different, but the right brain is looking for those connections. And we're saying, you know, in a way we're, we're complementary to each other. And the people around you, every person around you, uh, you're connected to them in a really, and so just think about introverts and extroverts. And the left brain says, well, those are so different, you know? But the right brain says, what would an introvert be without an extrovert? An extrovert defines an introvert. Right. You can't separate them. They're inseparable and the right brain gets that. But the left brain has a difficult time. Like you said, it has a hard time putting that into words. Um, but that emotion and the feeling, to me, that's that's a perfect place to do it. And then the people like we can connect with that. And I get even if we both can't put it into words perfectly, that's okay because we still get it. And you know, intuition. I'm going to ask you about intuition in the brain in just a minute, and I'm so curious. But for me, I'm I'm a natural right brain thinker, even though I'm someone who's very verbal and went to school for a stupidly long time, or not stupidly, but a really really long time. I have many letters after my name because I went back for more uh, in my 40s. But despite all of that, I know that I'm naturally a right brain thinker, and I know too that for me, going to that place beyond words is where all the magic has always happened in my world, and it's what I do now for a living, even though a lot of my intuitive guidance comes through words, and even though my podcast is a lot of me talking, it always starts by going to the silent place first, and the words emerge from there, and I think if that's anywhere in my brain, and it's probably ultimately not anywhere in my brain anyway, but I think that you would say that's more of a right brain way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. So I discovered quite a while ago when I was lecturing, being terribly introverted and terribly neurotic, then thrown in being a professor and standing in front of 300 people and finding like, what am I going to (laughs) say? And I find that this is sort of true even when I do podcast dinner. So at the beginning, I always feel like there's nothing. I have nothing really interesting to say. And, and that's the left brain. That's our kind of ego that's like anxious. And it feels like a 
performance and it feels like judgment. You know, such an important component of mindfulness is the non-judgment part. And what I've discovered is if I can just take that and step that aside and just let the intuitive, let the right brain be the guide and go to places just on feelings, let it go to a place that I'm not necessarily thinking I want it to go. And so what I call the thinking mind is mostly the processing of the left brain. And what I find is exactly as you put it, you know, you take the thinking part and you just turn it down just a little bit, just enough. So these other modes of experience, these other modes of consciousness can express themselves. And that's when I find really wonderful things happen. And, and that's what happens with my writing. And so when I write, it's not my ego that's doing the writing. My ego is absolutely just taking notes. And where it comes from, anything good in the book, and if someone asked, well, where did you come up with that? Anything, I have no clue. I mean, the ego is absolutely clueless to where, but it gets to take credit for it. Sure. And that's the one funny thing about it. I, you know, I got to put my name on that book. And, um, but the, the really good stuff in it came from a mysterious place that I, I can't actually nail down with any precision. And I think that opens up the mystery of our existence, that there's a part of us, when you say intuition, there's a part of us where we know something, but we don't know how we know it. And which is to say, we can't put it in the words. The thinking mind doesn't have the processing ability to articulate and comprehend and dissect the process that went into that particular experience. And of course, this has been called the mystical experience for a really long time. But we're discovering that these things we call mystical experience, like a lot of us have them. We have them, and but the, the, the thinking mind, the left brain comes back online and it tries to trivialize it. It tries to downplay it. And it tries to say, oh, you know, that was just a coincidence. You know, don't buy that. Like you said, it's funny. I had that experience too with the Tao of physics. And it was, I remember running around to my professors thinking it was the most brilliant. I'm like, this is incredible. I can't even believe that the things in quantum mechanics are reflecting what the ancient mystics knew all along. And my professors would just kind of look at me and go, just a coincidence. And that's <laughs> a coincidence. And that's such a brilliant book. <laughs> and But the left brain wants to trivialize it because what we're experiencing here is such a mystery. It's such a mystery that I think for people, they feel if they embrace the mystery, it's going to be overwhelming because we want to know who we are. And if we started answering that question with, I don't know. I can't put into words who I am. My experience is ultimately a mystery. Myself is ultimately a mystery that cannot be put into words precisely, which means knowledge, as we know it from the Western science perspective, it's going to be limited. It's going to be limited. And, and we find a huge division now, in particularly consciousness research, where there's still the materialist and, you know, the neuroscientists who believe that the brain will ultimately reveal these mysteries. And then there's another group, which I put myself, and it sounds like we're in this camp, that, um, you know, the brain may yield some interesting pointers, but the real mystery of who we are is probably beyond thinking. It's probably beyond neuroscience. And it's, it's one of those mysteries 
that gets so filled with joy and euphoria almost that that's the nature of who we are. That's where we're coming from. So we're playing a very interesting game. We're playing a game of pretending that we're lost. You know, we play this game that we're these left brain egos and that, you know, like I'm Chris and I'm 54 and, you know, I'm a professor and I have this much money in the bank. And, you know, I see that this game can be, it's a game worth playing. It's a fun game. But like any game, if you take it seriously, it's going to have some suffering with it. And so I think the trick of the game is to say, well, can I see the mystery? You know, can I see that that's who I really am? And then when you see that, then everything shifts. You shift from being serious to everything starts to becoming much more fun. And there's a lot more joy. And that's not to say you don't have bad moods or you don't have moments where you take things seriously. But it's that shift that, like we were talking about earlier, I think as a culture, we're actually starting to shift over and we're we're recognizing that thinking isn't going to help us. A lot of money isn't going to help us. Things aren't going to help us. And so, you know, what is? And so figuring out the game that we're playing where we hide as egos But the truth is, we're this mysterious consciousness that's all interconnected. And when you have those experiences, they're always difficult to put into words. But the thing I found fascinating on this trip is so many times when I connect with someone, it's just instant. Like, we know. It's like, of course, we know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, my God. You said so many amazing things. And I'm also mindful of the time. And uh, it went so quickly. I could talk to you forever. And who knows, I might beg you to come back. But as we start to wrap up, I've got two warring questions in my brain. So I'm going to feel into which one wants to go first. You know, on your website, you have, and I apologize if I misquote you, something to the effect of this idea, are you ready to start using your mind rather than having your mind use you? And, you know, I think that that's the common experience for many human beings where we live in such a mind-driven world and we let the small sense of self be who we think we are and it runs the show. And I know for me, I worked really, 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 really hard. I was a kid with learning disabilities and I worked my behind off to develop that left brain and be quote unquote smart. (laughs) So I put a lot of effort in there to get, you know, where I am or was or whatever, but I recognize now that that mind is a great thing to have, that tool, the knowledge base, the whole way that works. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I have one, but I don't let it rule me so much anymore. And I use it as the tool that I think that it's meant to be. And, you know, for me, I use that word intuition and or spirit or whatever. I let that as much as humanly possible run the show. And I kind of think that's what you're getting at, no? Yeah, I think that's exactly, that was very well put because... There's nothing wrong with thinking. Sometimes people read the book and they think I'm so anti-thinking that I just want to get rid of it and just, you know, and that's not it at all. I really don't want to get rid of thinking. Thinking is allowing us to be on here and, and communicate and it allows people to write books and it allows people to go have jobs and be a college professor, study the brain. Yeah, it's a great part of the adventure. But the problem is if you start identifying with it and you start buying into this is who you are. Like, this is how smart I am. And you find this a lot, again, in academia, as you know. I mean, the intelligence is the currency of academia. And, you know, the thinking mind dominates so much. And it's not so much that that's a problem, but the academic world thinks there's so much of their thoughts that they think that 
thoughts are the beginning and end to our journey. And it's just a matter of perspective. They're a great tool. They're great when you want to use them. But when you're laying in bed and you're trying to sleep and <laughs> your thoughts are going through your and you're trying to figure out some problem and, you know, and it's some problem that can't even, it's already passed. So you think, you know, you go back and you relive the problem and you're trying to and all this stuff with the mind trying to figure out stuff that's useless you know, people have calculated that about 90% of our thoughts are just simply useless. So when we get caught up in this, it, it really is a world of suffering. And if we can just change that perspective to just a little bit to say, like, you know, this is a great tool, but I'm only going to take it out when I need it. You know, I mean, your hammer is great if you have a nail that needs to be hammered into a wall. But if you're going to try to use it as a pillow and try to eat it and try, you know, <laughs> not so good. Yeah. If you're going to do everything else with it. And so I tell people, and, and this is one of the things I focused on with my second book, is that we haven't been thinking very long. If you look at the evolution of our species, or not just even our species, if you look at the evolution of life on Earth, we've been feeling We've been creatures of feeling for about 600 million years before we started thinking. And so if we can put the thinking into perspective and say, this is a really new tool, it's so imperfect. I mean, I ask people all the time, I say, you know, start calculating how many times your thoughts are right. Oh, I know this is going to happen. I know this is, and you'll be surprised to see how often your your thoughts only needed to be right just enough so our species would survive. And so, uh, but we've been creatures of feeling, you know, life on the planet has, has felt more than we've thought. And so when you can start using the tool of thinking very selectively, what you'll find is this wonderful world of intuition and feelings. And they're far better, at least I found them to be far better guides to your life and the big questions of what do I need out of this existence? Where am I going? What's my journey about? Because when we ask the big questions, we think we can think about them. And we turn to the thinking mind and we're turning to the wrong place. We need to turn to that ancient wisdom of feelings, that ancient wisdom. that's a much older system and uh, it's much more in tune with the environment, with the bigger picture. And I think that would take us quite a way on our journey. If we only thought when when it was really practical. And when thinking wasn't practical, then we, some people do claim they can turn it off. I haven't been completely successful with totally turning <laughs> off the thinking mind. I think it's more like turning it down or just turning your attention elsewhere. All right. Last question before we have to wrap up. I asked this to everyone and, and we're almost there. And just even what you're talking about, intuition, what does that mean to you? And how do you experience your inner wisdom? But some of it is, like I said before, letting the ego get out of the picture. When the ego gets out of the picture, when, when my sense of self uh, steps aside, then something really interesting always seems to appear. And then the ego comes back on and has no clue where it came from. And so when we can get in touch with something beyond our thoughts about who we think we are, it's like a world that is so much more spontaneous it's spontaneous and it's it's a fascinating world that seems to be more like home i think and so for me the transformation is going from this small little ego the voice in the head to something much bigger and that much bigger is the intuitive part 
the much bigger has the breadcrumbs home and, and it's telling you who you really are. And, you know, they, there's all these sayings that the universe will just keep hitting you over the head until you start to listen. And so that bigger self that far exceeds your thoughts about the world is continuously helping you find your way home. Every day, you've got clues out there. And if you can get out of this self-story, and so, so many of us, we get consumed with, you know, my story, myself, my ego, you know, what do I have to do? What are my bills I have to pay and my work troubles? And if you stay consumed with that, you'll miss out on those breadcrumbs. You'll miss out on those, those clues, those synchronicities, those hints that the universe keeps telling you, here's your home. Here's who you are. Come back home. You know, you can come back home, you know, in Arthurian legends, when they talk about the myth of the Grail Castle, they always say, oh, the Grail Castle, you know, that's kind of like a mythical example of going home. And and they always say, oh, the Grail Castle is just down the road and it's to the left. Like our path home is always just down the road and to the left. And we can go there anytime we want. It's simple, but it's it's not through thinking. And so we have to experience other modes of consciousness. And when we start doing that, you'll start noticing the breadcrumbs. You'll start noticing that the universe has been trying to take you home this whole time and doesn't want you to suffer. Amen to that. I love that. This has been such an amazing conversation. It's just such an honor to uh, read a book, fall in love with the book, and then get to talk to the author. So thank you so much. And thanks so much for sharing with listeners Just in case, we'll have all the information about how to connect with Chris and get his two books on the show notes for sure. But can you spell that out for people that are maybe, you know, in their car and and want that information without having to read right now? How do people find you in your books? Yeah, so I do have a webpage, just chrisneebauerphd.com. And I put all the basic information there about the books. And the the new one coming out, it actually has the same title, No Self, No Problem. It's just a workbook companion guide. So what we did with that is we realized, again, you can't think. So you have to have exercises. You have to have experience. And so we filled it with all kinds of exercises so people can work and see for themselves what it is that we're talking about. And that should be out in February or so next year. Amazing. I have a Facebook page. It's Catching Up with the Buddha. And just have a lot of fun with that. But actually, the place I've had a lot of fun lately is my YouTube channel. And that's also just Chris Niebauer. And I just have these short little, you know, two, five minute uh, videos I make exploring all this stuff with consciousness and uh, left and right brain. And that's been a lot of fun for me to connect with people and and just have these, you know, fascinating discussions after you do a video and you get to uh, connect with people on an intellectual level you've never even met, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But but you feel like, you know, you know them better than some of the people you've worked with for 10 years. So it's a fun trip. Amazing. We'll have all of that information in the show notes. Chris, thank you again. And also thank everyone for tuning in. Check out Chris's offerings and his book. I know you're going to love it as much as I did. And thanks again for tuning in. Namaste. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you found joy, strength, inspiration, and clarity from today's episode. If you'd like to learn more and connect with an amazing group of like-minded souls, please join us over on Facebook in the Intuitive Connection Community Facebook group, where we explore these topics in deeper detail, have additional live teachings, and host Facebook Lives with our amazing guests. 
I hope to see you there. And of course, if you want to learn more about me or the work that I do, please check out my webpage, victoriashawintuitive.com. Thank you so much again and namaste. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.